if you smell what the rock is cooking. Stick around. Let's talk about it. Houston, we have a problem. Habemos papam. Podcasting from a parking lot in the Woodlands, Texas, it's the Catholic Hack with Joe McLean. Take this, all of you, and eat it. This is my body, which will be given up for you. 1 Peter 3.15 Always be ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks you for a reason for your hope. Take this, all of you, and drink from it. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. It will be shed for you and for all, so that sins may be forgiven. The Church of the Living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. 1 Timothy 3.15 Do this in memory of Welcome back to the Catholic Hack. I'm Joe McLean, and this is episode number 49. And I didn't mean to be irreverent here in the midst of Triduum, in the midst of the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has instituted the Eucharist, who has been arrested, and who has undergone his trial, and even now is hung on the tree, and will be shortly today be giving up his life in forgiveness for my sins and for your sins. So I wasn't trying to be irreverent by playing the bit from uh, If You Smell What the Rock is Cooking. Instead, I, I thought it was just a good way to get your attention and to, and to talk about the so many things that I want to cover today. There's a very interesting tidbit that uh, I uncovered yesterday reading an article from Dr. Scott Hahn on the rock that Moses struck in the wilderness in Numbers chapter 20. And so I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the seven last sayings of Christ. And I want to talk about salvation history. But before we do all that, I still want to break bread with you with Dr. Scott Hahn. So without further ado, let's break bread. Easter Sunday, the greatest of days. We open our eyes to see an empty tomb where we expected to find death. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. And so the church celebrates the feast just as the apostles did by eating and drinking with the risen Lord. Find out more next on Breaking the Bread. Jesus is nowhere to be seen, yet today's gospel tells us what Peter and John saw and believed. What did they see? Burial shrouds lying on the floor of an empty tomb. Maybe that convinced them that he hadn't been carted off by grave robbers who usually stole the expensive burial linens and left the corpses behind. But notice the repetition of the word tomb seven times in nine verses. They saw the empty tomb, and they believed what he had promised, that God would raise him on the third day. And so chosen to be his witnesses, the first reading tells us this Sunday, the apostles were commissioned to preach and testify to all that they had seen, from his anointing with the Holy Spirit at the Jordan to the empty tomb. More than their own experience, they were instructed in the mysteries of of God's saving plan, to know how all the prophets bear witness to him. Now they could understand the scriptures, could teach us what he had told them, that he was the stone which the builders rejected, which today's psalm prophesies, his resurrection and exaltation. We are the children of the apostolic witnesses. That is why we still gather early in the morning on the first day of every week to celebrate this Easter feast of the empty tomb, to give thanks for Christ our life, as the epistle calls him. Baptized into his death and resurrection, we live the heavenly life of the risen Christ. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God, as St. Paul writes. We are now his witnesses too, but we testify to things we cannot see except by faith. We seek in earthly things that which is above. We live in memory of the apostles' witness, like them, eating and drinking with the risen Lord at his altar. And we wait in hope for what the apostles told us would come, the day when we too will appear with him in glory. This is Scott Hahn for Breaking the Bread. Breaking the Bread is a production of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. If you'd like to receive written copies of Dr. Hahn's reflections on the Sunday Mass readings, you can contact us by email at staff at salvationhistory.com. 
or call us at 740-264-9535. That's 740-264-9535. Well, you have made it through Lent. I pray that you've had a, a wonderful opportunity to prepare your heart spiritually to offer up the sacrifices necessary that will get you to this Good Friday, this today of all days where our Lord is hung on the tree, where our Lord thirsts for our souls, and where he has given up his spirit and saved his saved our souls instead of his own flesh. And that's what Lent prepares us for. It gets us to this point, that dryness, that wandering in the wilderness before we come into the Holy Land, the New Jerusalem, where things are abundant and and just ripe. And that's kind of where we're heading into. And I pray that you've had that opportunity during Lent to prepare yourself for that. I must admit, this was a challenging Lent for me because... You know, I felt like I didn't do enough. I felt like I didn't prepare myself well. I felt like I, I wasn't enough sacrifice. I had so many great ideas in my head of sacrifices that I wanted to do and simply just couldn't get to. My schedule went into hyperdrive. It, it felt like on Ash Wednesday, it, it just got crazy. And so I'm, you know, I'm offering up even more prayers as a result of that now I'm, that I'm in the midst of the Triduum. And so I pray that you, your Lent has gone better than mine. And I'm praying for you that, that this Easter, that you will be renewed in Christ and that you look forward to the resurrection glory and the empty tomb. Well, you know, this past week I put out a list on the blog, www.catholichack.com, where you could see all the radio stations, including Sirius Satellite Radio, uh, of, that's playing bits of the Catholic Hack podcast. I'm very blessed, and I praise God for this. This is a wonderful opportunity. Uh, there is a, a program called News and Views, and in this program, the Catholic Hack has is, is got about a nine-minute segment in that program that's, uh, that's being aired on those stations during the weekend. What a fantastic opportunity. Praise God and amen. And in fact, I produced a specific segment for Easter that will be aired on those stations this weekend. I call it The Empty Tomb. And you can actually listen to that nine-minute segment on the blog, www.catholichack.com. So check that out. Well, we have a lot of material to get into, and uh, I'm excited to talk about all this and to share with you this wonderful little insight that um, Dr. Scott Hahn led me to just yesterday. So without further ado, we've got to roll up our sleeves, and we've got to dive deep, and we've got to get into the truth about Christ on the cross and salvation history. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! This when I sit, even just a little bit, I get hit with the power that made the veil in the temple split. When I submit, fall on the floor and the door. Can't get enough, got to come back some more. Hey, Ten degree down bubble. One five zero feet. Ten degree down bubble. Aye, sir. Dive, dive, dive. Well, let's begin in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Grace to you in peace from our Lord and Father Jesus Christ. Well, I want to uh, share with you a couple of paragraphs from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Paragraph 599 says, Jesus' violent death was not the result of chance and an unfortunate coincidence of circumstances, but is part of the mystery of God's plan. As St. Peter explains to the Jews of Jerusalem in his first sermon on Pentecost, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This biblical language does not mean that those who handed him over were merely passive players in a scenario written in advance by God. Paragraph 601 says, 
The scriptures had foretold this divine plan of salvation through the putting to death of the righteous one, my servant, as a mystery of universal redemption, that is, as the ransom that would free men from the slavery of sin. Citing a confession of faith that he himself had received, St. Paul professes that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. In particular, Jesus' redemptive death fulfills Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant. Indeed, Jesus himself explained the meaning of this life and death and the light of God's suffering servant. After his resurrection, he gave this interpretation of the scriptures to the disciples at Emmaus and then to the apostles. What I liked about those two paragraphs and this whole section really is talking about this this divine plan from the very beginning this how the scriptures must be fulfilled this biblical language it really draws that out for us god suffered and died for us absolutely and it was the plan from the very beginning and that's the theme that i that i took for my special you know program for, on the radio uh, for the empty tomb, I went through salvation history and, and really talked about how from the very beginning, from Genesis chapter 3, God you know, proclaimed that he would undo what was done. He would make right the wrong. He would recreate the creation. And that's the, the idea here. And this is always the divine plan because God proclaimed it that way. A few years ago, I was leading a Bible study for a group of teenagers, uh, the youth group at uh, St. Joseph's Parish up in Belmont, New Hampshire, where my wife and I lived, and we were attending that parish. And we were following the Sunday readings all throughout Lent. We called it the Lenten Journey. And we read this, uh, this incident, this, this event back in the Old Testament of how Moses and Aaron had brought the people into the wilderness and the people were grumbling, they were complaining because they were thirsty and there was nothing here, you couldn't even grow anything. And why did you take us out of Egypt only to bring us into the wilderness and die? I mean, just a bunch of belly aching, right? And then Moses and Aaron, you know, they don't know what to do. So they go and they go to the tent of meeting and they're like, God, what, what do we do here? You, you got to help us out. And so God tells them, this is what you're going to do. Take your rod, go before the people and there's going to be a rock and you speak to the rock and the water will pour forth and you can use the water to you know give to the people and they can drink and they can give it to their cattle etc etc well Aaron and Moses they do that but not really what they do instead of speaking to the rock they strike the rock Moses takes his staff his rod and he strikes the rock twice now let's read this this is numbers chapter 20 because this is pretty cool a little a little significant insight that I learned from Dr. Scott Hahn just yesterday reading a commentary from John's gospel it says in Numbers chapter 20, starting in verse 1. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed at Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. Verse 2. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people contended with Moses and said, Would that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord! Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into the wilderness, that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us into this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord said to Moses, Take the rod and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them. So you shall give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his rod twice. 
And water came forth abundantly, and the congregation drank and their cattle. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to sanctify me in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land, which I have given them. Now, what I like about this image is, one, this, this image of the rock pouring out water. We see the same image, in, and I think it's even St. Paul in 1 Corinthians sort of makes this connection for us as well. That Christ, who hung on the tree, was struck with a lance from the soldier, and from his side poured forth blood and water. And we're going to get into the passion narratives here in a little bit. but And this is the waters of baptism, according to Augustine and the early fathers. They, they really saw the symbolic meaning of this event. Now, there's a very practical reason for this. I mean, Jesus was suffocating on the cross. When you're hanging on the cross, you know, basically there's fluid building up in your lungs and you're drowning, basically, on the cross. And there's also another condition, which I cannot recall the name for, where fluid will gather around the outside of the heart. So it's very likely when, when the Roman soldiers struck uh, Jesus with the lance, the clear liquid, there's a very practical reason for him to have seen the clear liquid. One, after death, the blood starts to separate and you see a clear liquid. There's the lungs, there's the heart, there's all of these medical conditions that can explain the existence of clear liquid as well as the red blood. But from a, you know, from a, a standpoint of the faith and and, and symbolically, you know, Augustine really saw that this was the waters of baptism and the Eucharist, the blood that he gave when he instituted the Eucharist, the Last Supper. And so we see these two images and Christ hanging on this tree, pouring forth out of his side, just like Adam when he fell asleep. His bride came from his side. So Christ, the new Adam, as St. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, from his side, when he fell asleep on the cross, pours forth the waters of baptism, the blessed sacrament, which is the church, which is his bride, as Ephesians 5 tells us. Now, what's cool about this? What's, where's the neat insight to that? The neat insight is, I was reading a commentary from Dr. Scott Hahn yesterday, and it, was, it referred me to the Targums on Numbers chapter 20. Now, I've talked about the Targums in the past on this podcast. The Targums, if you're not familiar with them, are an oral tradition of the Jews. You see, in Christ's day, the majority of Jews did not speak Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic. Hebrew was spoken in the synagogue or in the temple. This was a liturgical language. It was, you know, sacred. But the average Jew, you know, didn't have that sort of knowledge. And this is why they had the Greek Septuagint. They had the, the Hebrew Bible in Greek because the majority of, of, the, of the Jews were not even, you know, in Palestine. So they needed their own scriptures tra- translated into Greek. At any rate, in the temple, there would have been someone reading from the Torah in Hebrew and there would have been an interpreter, t- you know, translating it into Aramaic so that they could understand. Well, this is the oral tradition that happened over time. And the rabbis eventually wrote, the, wrote these down, and they're called the Targums. And you can, you can Google the Targums, and you can see what I'm talking about. And I'll provide you a link on the, on the show notes on the blog. But if you look at the Targums, the Palestinian Targum for Numbers chapter 20, it says when Moses struck the rock twice, the first time he struck it, it poured forth blood. And the second time he struck it, it poured forth water. How cool is that? Now that's that's the, the the you know the pepper and salt on your meat. That's just like the spice that a, that really just makes the stuff dance and come alive. How wonderful this image, this prefigurement of Christ being struck. And see, not only did God say, speak to the rock, have faith in me enough to speak to the rock, like Jesus says in the gospel, speak to the mountain and it shall be done. Speak to the fig tree and it withers. I mean, He spoke the words of institution, and it is his body. Why? Because he's the God-man, and he he spoke it. Just like he spoke, let there be light, and there was light. 
The words are powerful, just like we're told in, I think, the epistle of, of James that our tongues can be our undoing. Every word, every idle word we will make an account for. So words are powerful. And so God says, speak to the rock and the water will pour forth. But instead he, stri- he strikes the rock. It's not only once, but he strikes it twice. Blood and water pour forth. Christ is only to be struck once. Once for all, according to Hebrews. Once for all. So I thought that was a pretty cool insight, and I really, really wanted to share that with you today. I thought you would enjoy that. But uh, I really wanted, there's so much material that I really want to talk about today. And, you know, I really just enjoyed looking at this, the whole picture, the salvation history of what's going on here. I love to compare the passion narrative to the account in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. It is so powerful. It is so rich. I've actually done this already on the podcast. Uh, It was episode number two, and I called it The Secret to Unlocking the Gospel. So you, you should check that out because it probably has a little bit more detail than I'll go in today. Because what I really want to do today is I want to talk about the seven last sayings of our Lord. And, uh, you know, part of my Lenten sacrifice was to listen to a tape set from Dr. Scott Hahn on the seven last sayings. Now, he did this tape set, I want to say 1999 or 2000. It's hard to date it. There's no specific date, but I believe that's the time frame that uh, it was done. And I listened to it several times, many times during Lent, and it was very powerful. And so I thought, you know, what better for us to do than to meditate on the words of our Lord. But really quickly, if you go back to the book of Genesis, you see several things. We've talked about this many times in this podcast. In Genesis chapter 2, God creates Adam. He breathes upon him. And he gives him a very specific job. He tells him that he is to keep and protect the garden. And what we said before is the Hebrew words Abudah and Shamar there used to, to, to signify the keeping and the protecting the garden are the same Hebrew words used to tell the priest in the wilderness, in the tabernacle, as they serve at the altar, that they are to keep and protect. It's the same, it's the same words. And so we see Adam as a priest. He, and his sons, therefore, are priests. And so we have a priestly family created, you know, right here in Genesis chapter 2. But keeping and protecting, it's his job to keep and protect it. And he's put to sleep, and from his side, God takes a rib and creates woman and brings the woman to him. And he says, woman, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. You can hear the excitement in his voice. Just like Christ, who fell asleep on the cross and from his side poured forth the water and the blood And this signifies the birth of our church, the bride of Christ, according to Ephesians 5. And so we see that image. Then we get into the garden narrative in chapter 3, where the Nahash comes into the garden. Now, the Nahash, Nahash is the Hebrew word for serpent. But it's much more than that. It's dragon. It's monster. It's Leviathan. You see this in Psalms and Leviticus and Job. And, and in, in Revelations, we see Satan is depicted as the ancient serpent, but he's a dragon. You know, this huge monster. This is not an intent. This is not a, a, a little garden snake. You know, it's this is not the image that we want. We want a monster in our minds. That's what's going on. This intimidating monster coming into the garden. And when you read the Targums about this particular instance, it even says that he walks into the garden. He's he's got legs. He's he's walking. Okay, so we're not thinking snake, we're thinking monster. And Adam, whose job it is to keep and protect the garden, what's he do? Does he stand in the gap? Does he protect his wife? Does he keep and protect the garden like a gardener would? A gardener who keeps and protects the garden? No. He's quiet. Why? Because when God told him in chapter 2 to, to, that he is not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest he die the death, and God repeats the Hebrew word, die the death, because on that day he shall die. When Satan says that, says that in chapter 3, he doesn't repeat it. He just says, surely you will not die. So he only says it once instead of twice like God. What's going on here? Adam is being given a choice. Do you save your skin or do you save your soul? 
Well, Adam was a coward. He sat there and said nothing. He allowed his wife to confront, be confronted and deal with this monster by herself. And he chose to save his flesh. And he gave up his soul. And on that day, he surely died. It was his soul that died. And so Satan intimidates and he bullies and he's the liar and the murderer from the very beginning, as Jesus tells us. And so Eve, out of fear, is beguiled and she eats and she gives it to her cowardly husband and he eats and then they fall from grace. And the Targums say that at that moment that the purple robe with which they were created is stripped off of them. And we read in the gospel John 19, then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. The Targums bring out this point of the purple robe in which they were created fell from them, and they were naked. And Jesus is stripped of his clothes, and he's wrapped in a purple robe, and he's crowned with a crown of thorns. And then Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden in Genesis 3, and it says, To the thorns and the thistles they are sent. We see the same images, nakedness, purple robe, the thorns, the shame, You know, we see all these same images in both the Passion Narrative and Genesis, uh, Garden of Eden account. And And when God walks in the cool of the day back in Genesis 3, what happens? Adam is cowering, he's hiding in a bush, in a garden. Adam hides when he's confronted. In a garden, Jesus, in the in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is filled with these beautiful ancient olive trees, same trees there today were there at the time of Christ, that night when Jesus was arrested. And in this garden, when he's confronted with a cohort, which is hundreds of soldiers, imagine the sound that would have been made of, of a couple of hundred soldiers and temple police coming out to find you. It would have been... It would have been noise, noisy, it would have been deafening, you know, to hear this cohort out there in the night looking, being led by Judas for Jesus. What does Jesus do? Does he run from them? No, he runs towards them. He meets them. What are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. Come and get me. Adam is a coward in a bush. Jesus is courageous. Adam is silent at the the base of that tree in a garden. Christ is yells out at the base of that tree in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will be done, but thy will be done. He repeats it three times. He is loud. He is speaking out. Adam, when faced with this choice, save his skin, give up his soul, he chooses his skin, and he's quiet. And instead of crying out to God for help, he just is a coward and he's silent and lets his wife face the Nahash. Christ, faced with the same issue, save your skin or save your soul. You see, in the garden, he saw the passion. He saw every single lash of the, of the whip of the cat of nine tails. He saw every beating he would take, every spit, every mockery, every shame, every humility, every one of my sins. He saw what he had to do, the nails in his hands and his feet, the crown on his head. And he had to make a choice. Save the skin or save the soul. And Christ chooses to save not only his soul, but more importantly, all of our souls. He chose to, to give up his humanity in such a horrible way to save our souls. Unlike Adam, Christ is courageous. Adam is a coward. And the judgment that was put upon Adam, you see, God was calling them to confession. And I did a, a podcast on confession where I really talk about this, where you can see that you can see the model of confession, just like the Catholic Church teaches it in Genesis chapter 3. God's calling them to confession. He's meeting them halfway, just like the prodigal son's father met him on the road halfway. He came. And you know, interestingly enough, the, the Hebrew word when Jesus walks in the cool, when God walks in the cool of the day, it says he used the word ko. Scott Hahn brought this point out, that we see the same word used elsewhere 
to talk about a huge, loud, roaring noise. Think of thunder peals, this loud noise, not, not just branches being snapped as you walk in the woods. It's not like that. Like the cohort come out for Jesus in the garden in Gethsemane, the God walks in with, with this huge, loud, rumbling presence. I'm here, you know? And so we see the same image. And when God judges them and sends them out, out of the garden, to toil and labor all the days of their life, to the thorns and the thistles, it says, that this image is given to us in Genesis 3 of his sweat dripping from his head and falling onto the ground all the days of his life. And there in the garden of Gethsemane, our Lord Jesus Christ sweats blood falling from his head onto the ground. Christ is the new Adam, as St. Paul tells us so clearly. And in the garden, it was Eve that did all the talking, by a tree. Yet by a tree in another garden, and according to John's Gospel, that Calvary was at a garden. And by that, at the foot of that tree, our Blessed Lady, who was the new Eve, according to the Church Fathers, didn't say a word. And we're going to talk about that more here in a minute. See, the parallels are fantastic. They're wonderful. Because God was recreating. He is undoing what was done. He is making the creation anew. Fresh. Not completely different. New. He's fixing it. He said so back in Genesis 3 when he said that he will put enmity between the woman's seed and the seed of the serpent. That he will undo what was done. And by the seed of the woman will he make it all right. And the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And Scott Hahn really brings this out. We see he could see the pattern all through salvation history. You know, when you have Jael going and dispatching the Philistine warlord with a mallet and a tent peg in judges. And he gives other examples in this tapes that I listened to. But it was really fantastic. And you see, when 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 Jesus is, is crucified and he's buried, and on that third day when Mary Magdala comes to the tomb and the tomb is empty and she's weeping and she sees a gardener, which is really our Lord, and she just doesn't see him. She thinks he's the gardener. What's a gardener do? It keeps and protects the garden. And then Jesus reveals himself to her and calls her woman. And so in a garden, we have the new Adam and woman. This is a clear image. It's unmistakable. The creation has been recreated. When Jesus says, it is finished, he's referring to the paschal sacrifice. The paschal sacrifice is fulfilled. The prefigurement in Exodus chapter 12 was foreshadowing for this very event. When Jesus says, tell Telestai on the cross, it is finished. The creation, the paschal sacrifice is finished. So I really thought we'd take a few minutes just to draw out those parallels. And really, I want you to dive deep. I want you to go back and reread Genesis chapter 3. And then go back and read the passion narratives. And see those parallels. See how our Lord was really recreating, undoing what was done in that garden. Really draw that out and go and look at the Targums. Read the Targum on chapter 3 of Genesis and, and then you'll see that there is some fantastic... Because not only did it say that Satan walked into the garden, it also said that he removed his legs and he crawled out of the garden. Pretty cool. Very cool stuff. I really encourage you to do that. But you know, uh, one of the other things I really wanted to cover, and I didn't want to take all your whole day to do it, was the seven last sayings of our Lord Jesus Christ. I thought... Uh, you know, I really just want to go through these and, and, and talk about them for a minute. And I think I want to start in, in Luke's gospel, starting at verse 32. It says, Two others also, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place which is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I had an interesting discussion with Chris O'Bear. Chris is a uh, national Catholic speaker. Uh, he's been on Catholic Answers a few times, and he also happens to be one of my bosses. And 
we at, we talked about is is forgiveness conditional? Do we always have to forgive someone who's done wrong against us? My first thought, of course, naturally is yes. If Christ tells us we must forgive seventy times seven, you know we must forgive if we are to be forgiven. But what if someone what if someone punches you in the face? And, and they say, you know what, I'm not sorry for it, and next time I see you, I'm going to punch you in the face again. Do we have to forgive that person? And I thought, well, you know, I, I think we do. But you know what he did? He gave me a piece of paper, and on it, it said, the requirement of forgiveness does not cancel out the objective requirements of justice. In no passage of the gospel message does forgiveness or mercy as its source mean indulgence toward evil toward scandals, toward injury or insult. In any case, reparation for evil and scandal, compensation for injury, and satisfaction for insult are conditions for forgiveness. And then, see, he didn't tell me who said that. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm not sure I agree with that last statement. And then I flipped the page over, and on the other side was Pope John Paul II. Oh, boy. (laughs) You know, I'm sorry, but I don't think I'd argue with Pope John Paul II too often. I wouldn't recommend it. That guy is a pretty holy man. And so I thought, okay, I thought about this more. And in fact, that very night, I had an opportunity to meet Jimmy Aiken. He came to give a talk. And we talked to Jimmy Aiken about this. And he agreed. We're not required to give forgiveness to someone who will not accept or receive that forgiveness. However, that being said, just because just because we're not required to do it doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. We shouldn't do it anyway. Here on the cross, Jesus says, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do." They're ignorant. So is the guy who punches me in the face and says, "You know, I'm not sorry. I'm going to do it again next time." He's ignorant too because if he knew that one day he will give an account for all of his actions before the holy of holies in heaven, before Jesus Christ, And on that day, he will look Christ in the eye and realize he spent every single one of his days on earth doing everything against the will of God. Do you not think he will not regret that? He doesn't know what he's doing. If he did, he wouldn't do it. God loves us so much that he's not going to make slaves out of us. He's not going to force us to love him back. He's not going to force us to go to heaven. God loves us enough to let us go to hell. That's called free will. And so, but Jesus on a cross forgives those who are persecuting him, forgives those who are nailing him to the, to the tree of life. The event that made salvation so necessary, the one event that made our redemption so absolutely necessary is the same event that makes our salvation possible. How wonderful and complex is that. And from the tree, with the nails through his hand, suffering, hardly able to breathe, he's hanging there and he has to lift himself up on those nails to take a deep breath in. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. (sighs) Struggling for every single breath. If you have to say something, it's going to be something worth saying because it's just so extremely painful. Imagine the nail going through this, this little cord of, of an infinite number of, of, of nerve strings. And every single touch one, it's just an intense, most intense amount of pain you can ever imagine. And he's having to pull himself up on this and just deal with the pain to be able to say... Forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. Can I do that? Can you? Are you capable of forgiving the guy next to you who cuts you off in traffic? The guy who takes too long in front of you at the grocery store to check out? Or the guy at the convenience store who decides to buy 52 scratch tickets that day and scratch them all in front of you while you're waiting? I don't know, man. I struggle here. I have my own issues that I have to work out. And Christ, from the tree of life, forgives those who caused him this pain. He's forgiving all of us. How wonderful a statement is that? 
He goes on to say, in verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingly power. And he said that he being Jesus, in verse 43, said, said to him, Truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Now, there are so many things we could talk about here. You see, a lot of uh, critics to the Catholic Church will say, See, this is the, the faith alone being realized, actualized in the gospel narrative. You know, the, the thief only had faith and he is saved. Is that what's going on here? Really? Well, one... He does have faith. There is no question. Our salvation begins with faith. It must begin with faith. We must have faith in God. We must have faith in the resurrection of God. Adam should have had faith in the resurrection of God. He should have stand in the gap between his wife, the garden, and Nahash, and laid down his life and trusted in God to raise him up. He should have saved his soul instead of his flesh. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, fear not the one who can take the, the body, but fear the one who can take both the body and the soul and throw them in the fires of Gehenna. You see, this is very, this is very important. Faith is the beginning of our salvation. It is not the end. It is merely the beginning. We must live out that faith every day until the day we look Christ in the eye at our judgment. That's the day we know we're in heaven or not. But here we see this thief witnessing to Jesus Christ, accepting his own judgment, accepting the price that he has to pay for the life and the choices that he made. He was a thief. He knows it. He knows that, you know, he did something wrong and he's going to have to pay a price for that. So what he's getting, he deserves. He recognizes that Jesus is innocent and that what Jesus is getting, he does not deserve. So he rebukes a sinner. And as, as Dr. Scott Hahn says in that tape set, have you done that recently? Have you, A, witnessed to Jesus, to, to a crowd around you at your workplace, in your family? At the grocery store, have you witnessed to Jesus lately? This, 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 uh, this thief has. Have you rebuked a sinner lately for railing against Jesus? Well, this thief has. Those are works. Those are good works. Yes, he has a faith, but he has a faith that immediately began to produce good works. He's witnessing to Christ Jesus. He's begging for mercy. He's accepting his own punishment for the sins that he's committed. He's making, he's making reparation for those sins. He's repentant. Are you? Am I? So it's not faith alone that's going on here. No, this thief is doing much more than what most critics are prepared to admit. And he's also doing much more than most people are prepared to do. So I thought that that was very, very good. Switching over to John's Gospel, chapter 19, starting at verse 26, we see, When Jesus saw his mother, the disciple whom he loved, standing near, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So these are the next two sayings that we will look at briefly. Now, a lot of critics to the Catholic Church will say Jesus had brothers and sisters, and they cite various passages to try to substantiate their claim. But when you start to, to look at all of the passion narratives between the various Synoptic Gospels and John's Gospel, what you see is there were multiple Marys at the foot of the cross. And verse 25, it makes that point. And what you see is the other... James and, and John and all them were the sons of another Mary. But more to my point here, this is much more significant than that. In Jewish, in the first century Jewish society, if you had brothers, 
and you died and your parents were left in your care, the, the care of those parents would have been passed on to the next, the next Ken, the next sibling, the next brother. That's the law. They would have had to have taken care of them. In fact, Jesus, you know, rebukes the Pharisees in the Gospels because the Pharisees were trying to find loopholes for people to get out of caring for their parents. They weren't fulfilling the fourth commandment to honor thy father and mother because they were taking their their wealth and putting it into the temple treasury almost like a bank so they could go to their parents and say, oh, I'm sorry, I can't really afford to pay for your, you know, your retirement now because I have no money. It all belongs to the, the temple. Well, pfft. That and a nickel will get you nothing. And so we see here Jesus turning to the disciple whom he loves. And he turns to this woman, his blessed mother. Why doesn't he say, Mama, behold your son? He says, Woman. Why? Because they're at the, the garden. Jesus, who is the true bread come down from heaven, the fruit of the womb of our blessed lady, hanging on the tree of life, is there. He's referring to her as woman because she is the new Eve and we're given this image of the recreation in a garden. The last Adam, the woman, the tree. And he says, woman, behold your son. Then he turns to the disciple whom he loves and says, behold your mother. And from that hour, John takes her into his home and cares for her. It's not possible that Jesus had other brothers or else this would not have happened. They would not have allowed John to take care of Mary when they were obligated to take care of Mary. It would have been highly inappropriate. And so that's just a plain apologetic proof for you know the fact that Jesus was an only child. We could have another podcast on that subject and go all day long on that point, but I just thought I'd bring that up. But the fact, the other issue that we should cover is blessed, the Blessed Lady is our mother. Aren't you a disciple of Christ? Are you not loved by Jesus? Okay, well, then you're a beloved disciple. You're the beloved disciple, just like I'm the beloved disciple. When Christ gives the lady, his mother, to John, he's giving her to all of us. And we see this same thing going on in Revelations chapter 12 when the blessed lady is chased by the dragon and she goes and she intercedes for all of those who follow her son. She is our mother. She is our mother. She's interceding for us. She wants us to come to her. Just like the Gibirah of the Old Testament. Just like Bathsheba was to King Solomon. And so Our Lady is to Jesus. Interceding on our behalf. Just like God in, in Genesis chapter 3 said it would, it would be the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. And so we see the image right here, right now, in the recreation, in a garden, at the foot of a tree, the woman, the last Adam, giving us this mother to intercede and care for us as a mother does, as the perfect mother does for all of us. She is the first among saints. But what an image at the foot of a tree. Imagine the pain and suffering that our Blessed Lady would have seen and felt. You know, as a Protestant, we tend to think of our Blessed Lady as an incubator. We don't want to respect or honor her because we feel that it takes away from Christ. Christ was the only person in humanity to ever have created his own mother. If you could create your mother, would you not make her perfect? Christ did. Why? Because he can, and he could, and he did. He made her without, without sin. She was free from all sin. And Christ, being the perfect human, the God-man, fulfilled the fourth covenant more perfectly than anybody else to honor thy, mo- thy mother and father. He honors our blessed lady by giving her to all of us to honor and to love. You know, if I were to look at a painting standing side by side with the man who painted that painting, and I said... Wow, what a beautiful painting. You've done such a fantastic job. Would the artist turn to me and say, What are you talking about? I'm right here. Don't look at my painting. Look at me. Don't look at my masterpiece. Look at me. Praise me, not my painting. Of 
course not. That would be ridiculous. We would honor him by honoring his masterpiece. Our Blessed Lady is the masterpiece of God. And by honoring her, we honor God. Tell me that's not true. I myself love to hear good feedback from you about my podcast. How good it makes me feel when, when you say, Oh, I love your podcast. It's great. It makes me feel great. How vain is that, though, really? But it's true. It's human, it's human nature. How much more when we praise our, and, and honor our Blessed Lady, not as God, but as the first among saints, as the Holy Lady who intercedes for us, who cares for us as her children, and wants us to, to bring us to Jesus, her Son, wants nothing more than our salvation and everlasting happiness with her Son. How much more do we honor God by honoring His Blessed Lady? In St. Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 27 and verse 46, it says, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now I have to admit, this shook me. I could never understand. I remember being in RCIA and going through this and thinking, Jesus could not have been perfect. He could not have been God. This does not make sense. He's standing, he's, he's nailed to the tree, and he's saying, God, why have you forsaken me? What? Come, what? Stop. This was a deal breaker. If Jesus was truly, like, saying, why are you forsaken me while he's on the cross? That means he's, this is, like, not real. I mean, I could die for you. That doesn't make me God. So I was really troubled by that until I realized what was going on here. And when I was doing the Bible study with the youth group a few years ago, I said to them, close your eyes. Listen to this. If I said, oh, say, can you see? What would you say? And before I could finish my sentence, they all said, by the dawn's early light. I mean, really, they did. It, and I stole this from Dr. Scott Hahn. There's no original thought. There's no original bone in my body. Trust me on that. But it's exactly what's going on here. Jesus is quoting scripture. He's quoting Psalm 22. Now, Dr. Scott Hahn likes to point out, in his humanity, he felt every bit of anguish that you and I would feel in the same circumstance. There's no doubt. But in his divinity, he didn't do anything just just cause. You know what I mean? It was a purpose for every single bit, every word uttered. When you have to lift yourself up on those nails and, and gather the strength and the courage to face the torment and the pain and the breath, <gasps> my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? <sighs> I mean, you didn't need to lift yourself up to say that if, if you were just saying, this is all crazy, God, why have you left me? You promised me you'd take care of me and you didn't. No, he's doing that not for his sake, he's doing that for our sake. And if we turn to Psalm 22, we'll see exactly what he means. Yes, Psalm 22 starts off with a, you know, a little bit of lamentation, a little bit of woe is me, but it ends gloriously. And Jesus was quoting the very first line, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? From the words of my groaning. O oh my God, I cry by day, but thou dost not answer, and by night, but find no rest. Yet thou art wholly enthroned on the praises of Israel. In thee our fathers trusted, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. To thee they cried and were saved. In thee they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and no man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He committed his cause to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet thou art he who took me from the womb. Thou didst keep me safe upon my mother's breasts. Upon thee was I cast from thy from my birth, and since my mother bore me, thou hast been my God. Be not far from me, 
for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. Thou dost lay me in the dust of death. Yea, dogs are round about me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my raiment they cast lots. That is the passion. They're casting his lots. They're spitting and mocking at him. They're piercing him, his hands and his feet. They've poured him out like water. They've beaten, they've abused him. Jesus is quoting this. He's evoking this entire psalm. Just like when I said, Oh, say, can you see? They respond with the rest of it. Same thing for the first century Jews. But the very this is the turning point right here. We've set the stage with this image of the suffering servant. Pierced, beaten, abused, mocked. And in verse 19 of Psalm 22, it, ch- it, it changes. The tempo goes up. But thou, O Lord, be not far off. O thou, my help, hasten to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion, my afflicted soul from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of thy name to my brother in the midst of the congregation. I will praise thee. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you sons of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you sons of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hid his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. He has heard when he cried to him. Did you read that? Did you hear that? Jesus is crying out, and God is hearing him. From thee comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will pay before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Yea, to him shall all the proud of the earth bow down. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. And he who cannot keep himself alive... Posterity shall serve him. Men shall tell of the Lord to the coming generation and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn that he has wrought it. That's Psalm 22. How wonderful is that? How fantastic is that? When I learned of that, I was like relieved. Oh, God, it was, Jesus wasn't just some man. He is God. And he's proclaiming the glory of the Lord. He is quoting the entire psalm, but he can only get out so much from the cross so he can only say the very first words. And so the people surrounding him or mocking him even realize what's going on because immediately they're going, maybe he's just calling Elijah. What's going on here? Is he going to come down from the cross? And so, you know, a lot of other critics really talk about how God turned his back on Jesus when he was on the cross because God could only see the sin of mankind. And so he poured out his wrath. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus is God. He's the second person of the Blessed Trinity. How can you turn your back on yourself? God was never happier. He was never more proud of his son than at that moment. Why would he ever turn his back on his son? He wouldn't. He turns towards his son. Jesus tells us in John's gospel, the best thing you could ever do is to lay down your life for a friend. If that's the best thing, then why would God consider that abhorrent and turn his back on him and pour out his wrath? Jesus accepted our sins and paid the price for them? Yes. But 
that didn't displease God. That pleased God more infinitely than we can ever imagine. And the infinite second person, the Son, the, in, the infinite Son, pours out his love back to the infinite God who accepts and receives it and gives it right back. It's an infinite loop of love and sacrifice and redemption and love and sacrifice and redemption. That's why it's the once-for-all sacrifice, as Hebrews tells us. Because Jesus, who is the high priest wearing the seamless tunic, is offering that same sacrifice in the heavenly Holy of Holies. That's the same sacrifice that touches down on earth at the Mass. When we represent that one sacrifice, Calvary is truly present on the altars of every Catholic church on the planet, offering up that sacrifice every hour, as Malachi 1 tells us, the clean sacrifice continually throughout every day. And so this, it was very powerful to me. Very, very powerful. And Jesus, back in John's Gospel, tells us, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was finished, this is verse 28, said, to fulfill the Scriptures, just like in the Catechism reading, to fulfill the Scriptures, I thirst. A bowl of vinegar stood there, so they put a sponge full of vinegar on hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the, the vinegar, he said, it is finished. Tell Telestai. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Those are the words of our Lord. It is finished. What's finished? Our salvation? No. Even St. Paul says that we must. Jesus must be raised for our salvation. What's finished then? What's finished is the Passover meal. The Paschal sacrifice that began in the upper room and ended at Calvary. It's the one and the same sacrifice. It's the fourth cup. And for this, I need to refer you to a book by Dr. Scott Hahn called, called A Father Who Keeps His Promises. You need to read chapter 12. Or go on to St. Joseph's um, Communications and pick up a talk from Dr. Scott Hahn called The Fourth Cup. And it is powerful. I'll provide a link to that, by the way. It is powerful. You see that the cup in the Garden of Gethsemane that our Lord is referring to? The one that he tells St. Peter when he, when he tells him to drop the sword? He says, well, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me to drink? This is not simply the cup of wrath. No, the context here is the Passover, which there are four cups in the Passover. The third cup, which is the cup of blessing according to the Jewish Haggadah, which is the liturgy of the Passover. That's what St. Paul tells us was the cup that was consecrated, 1 Corinthians. The fourth cup, he didn't drink. This would have been strange for a Jew to not drink the fourth cup. That's the cup of consummation in the Passover Haggadah. Jesus takes that cup and he drinks it on the cross because he says in the, in, the, in the narratives that he shall not drink of the fruit of the vine again until that day when he is in the kingdom of God. That day was when he was hanging on the cross. He was never more glorified than when he was on the cross for you and for me. And in John's Gospel, starting in verse 28, it tells us that he thirsts. Yes, thirsts for our souls, thirsts for our salvation. Absolutely. But he's thirsting for that fourth cup, the cup of consummation, the cup that the Father has given him to drink. He has completed the Passover sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He has taken the foreshadowing of the Passover liturgy from Exodus 12 and made it the Eucharist. He is the true bread come down from heaven, the real bread of life, the fruit of the womb hung on the tree of life that we are to now go to that tree of life, eat and live forever and trust in the resurrection of our Lord. Unlike Adam, who didn't trust in that resurrection, Christ trusted in the resurrection of God. He is the model for us to follow. And if we trust in the resurrection of our Lord, we come to the tree of life, we eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, we will have life within us, according to John 6, and he will raise us up on the last day. Trust in that resurrection. Praise God and amen. The tomb is empty. The paschal sacrifice is complete. The bread come down from heaven is here for the food for the journey. And Christ is risen. The creation is anew. The new Adam, the woman in a garden with an empty tomb. Christ trusted in God. He came to show us the way. So let us follow Christ, trust in him, give up our flesh, and save our souls, proclaim his glory like the good thief, 
forgive those who do not know what they do, and embrace our Blessed Lady as our mother. Well, that's going to do it for episode number 49. We had to cover a lot of material, and I really appreciate all your patience. And, you know, please, send me your feedback. Let me know what you thought. You can catch me at www.catholichack.com. There you'll find the phone number to leave me a voicemail feedback. You can send me an email. You can catch me on Facebook, another great way that people reach out to me. And please know that I have been praying for you. So many of you uh, have let me know, especially about jobs right now. There's uh, Many of you are struggling through work-related issues, and I know what that's like. I've been there, and I've prayed fervently. And please know that I have actually prayed for you specifically, and there's several of you that I've prayed for you specifically you know, during this last couple of weeks, and I'm continuing to pray for you. So thank you so much for all the grace that you've poured back to me. Please leave me a review on iTunes. That is a way for you to support this podcast. That's a way for you to evangelize by leaving me reviews and asking other people to subscribe to me through iTunes. And so I thank you so much for that. Well, you know, the tomb is empty. Praise God and amen. We've made it through Lent. We have so much more material to get to, so please stick around. This podcast has a lot to get to, a lot of interviews, so look forward to all that. Until next time, I'm praying for you. Please pray for me. May God richly bless you. God bless. SQPN, the best in Catholic podcasting.